Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church man that worship set was dynamite I mean I missed the first one I had a, a, a pretty hectic morning this morning I l- ended up losing my iPad and Bible earlier and someone had to bring it in it was a mess and so I didn't get to hear how that set flowed into this sermon and then after the sermon I mean I had all these I cried during the sermon other people were crying I had really heavy conversations immediately afterwards and then I saw just now how like the Lord used all that liturgy prayer and song to get us to this point right here Amen. This series has been absolutely unbelievable. As a staff and as leaders, we've been talking about just how much we've been coaching and counseling through uh, emotions, through different anxiety, through all the things, through grief, through all the things that we've been uh, talking through. And so I am, uh, to say that I'm excited to get up here and uh, just punch Satan directly in his mouth a second time for today is a wild understatement. I can't wait, man. It's going to be so good. So I'm going to pray uh, for us, and then we're going to dive into this. This is a, a heavy text um, for us, so I would encourage you to pray for me. Uh, as I pray for me and pray for you, let's uh, partner with me in that. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come and do just that. God, as we talk about the schemes of the devil, Lord, we reveal him for who he is, uh, a liar, cowardice, defeated, all the things that he is. Yet he lies to us and tells us we have to hold on to all these different things, all these doubts, and for today specifically that people won't understand or they won't get us or we'll be ostracized if we actually confess. I've been a Christian for too long to confess the things that, are, that I'm doubting in my mind. And so God, I pray today, oh man, that we just get to punch him again, that we get to just reveal him for who he is, the cowardice enemy that he is, who lies in the field position in utter and total defeat, because King Jesus sits on the throne. So God, I pray that as, just as we enter in this text, man, I pray for my own emotions. I'm all over the place. Today it's heavy. I pray for those that are in the room too, that they might step into some transparency and vulnerability themselves. Uh, I pray, God, as always, I'd be attentive to your word, first and foremost, to your spirit, most certainly, uh, and then to everyone else. As I prayed earlier today, God, I pray that, I pray you might just clear the room out so it's just me and you. Um, God, help me to give back what you've just been giving me uh, all week long. I pray all this in the sweet, precious name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So we're, if you're partnering, if you're new uh, to Heights, let me take a minute and welcome. My name is uh, Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for the next couple of weeks. You'll be stuck with me uh, for a couple of weeks. And so uh, we're currently in a series on the Psalms, just looking at how do we engage our emotions, which I'm having a hard time doing this morning, if I'm honest. Uh, how do we engage uh, our emotions with the gospel. Maybe I should say I'm having a really good time doing that. I'm just kind of all over the place a bit. And, and in that, like, w- w- it's important to recognize and to understand that like, God speaks through his word, God speaks through his spirit, God speaks through his people, and God also speaks through our psyche. He's talking to us. And so uh, we say in the Johnston family, we treat our emotions like we treat kids. Uh, they, they get a voice at the table, but they don't make any major decisions for the family. And so we want to pay attention to our emotions, but we don't want to allow them to dictate everything that we go about 
doing. Otherwise, everything would be lit on fire. Tornadoes would be everywhere in our lives. It'd just be a madhouse. And so today we're in Psalm 73 looking at doubt. And here's what I love the most about this in Psalm 73 is that this is written by a worship leader. So if you were to picture Jess being up on stage like she just was, or, or Pastor Jeff being up on stage, or Mark being up on stage, this is a worship leader who is addressing the congregation of the Lord uh, during ancient Israel time. And so that wasn't like a time where men were allowed to get up and be emotional and talk about what they were doubting and what they were fearing. Yet here this man stands up before the congregation of God, and he says, hey, I have some doubts. And I don't know about you, but like for me, like, that's really liberating as a leader, specifically in the church of God, that I can stand up and say, I, I have some doubts. I'm a skeptic at times. And, and think about like the last well, 22 months of COVID. Everyone uh, on staff at the church has had vocational doubt. All of us have almost quit at one time or another. That's partly due to COVID, maybe partly due to my poor leadership, maybe partly due to X, Y, or Z. But all of us have considered, hey, is this something we should continue doing? And felt called to it and so kept doing it. We have theological doubt. Like I read and I study widely. I read theology. I read culture. I read about secularism. We're going to talk about Christian deconstructionism today. Like I love reading widely. I'll tell you what, it doesn't answer all my doubts. For 13 years, I've been studying pretty aggressively, 9 to 15 hours a week, like studying God's word, reading commentaries, writing papers. I write almost 40,000 words some weeks just for this, every week, almost every 36, 37 weeks out of the year. You know what? I have an incredible amount of doubt sometimes. The more you learn, you don't necessarily alleviate the doubt. If anything, sometimes you learn more, and it just uncovers an avenue for you to have more doubt. You're like, well, dang, how did I get here? You know? And so there's this worship leader, and he's coming, and he's saying this, doubt is inevitable. Doubt does not care how old you are, church. Doubt does not care how long you've been a Christian. Doubt does not care about your position in the church, your leadership in the church, your vocation, your socioeconomic status, your race, or your ethnicity. Doubt is inevitable. It's going to come. And so as I wrote this, I'm thinking about, you know, our people here and those that are checking out online, like, Regardless of where you're at, there are three different camps that exist in this room and online. Uh, there is the seasoned Christian. There's the skeptic, who literally, by definition, is rendered with doubt, by very definition of the word skeptic. And then there's non-Christians, right? Those who just showed up, a friend told you you're going to Denny's, voila, you ended up in this room with no parking. And so, <laughs> welcome to Heights Community. And so, but non-Christians, right? And, and so think about that for just those three camps. Just think about it for a minute. Like, seasoned Christian. Have you not, in the last 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, depending on where you're at, have you not experienced doubt of some sort? It's not rhetorical. Have you not experienced doubt? Yeah. So for the skeptic, I won't make you speak out in this way, but for the skeptic, by definition, maybe you're here and you're saying, hey, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm figuring out what it means to walk in the faith, but I have some, some doubts. And one of the most beautiful things about our church is that we have a lot of skeptics a ton of skeptics that exist in missional community that have come into that arena to go to war and to ask questions. It's beautiful, but they, by definition, have doubts. For the non-Christian in the room, maybe you're atheist, which means you don't believe in any God at all. You don't believe in faith at all. You have to doubt because you literally say you don't have any faith. That's faith in anything. So there has to be some doubt that exists. For the agnostic, that's uncertain. That means that I believe in some God, but I'm not certain which God I believe in or who that God may be. Clearly, there would be Doubt, right? So what's, beautiful, what's hard and beautiful is that doubt is inevitable. And so we have two responses whenever it comes to 
doubt. So the big idea for today is this. Doubt can lead to dependency or doubt can lead to deconstruction. Doubt can lead to dependency or doubt can lead to deconstruction. The two points that I have are the exact same. They're just flipped. The first one is doubt can lead to deconstruction. We're going to start there. The second one is doubt can lead to uh, dependency. Sound good? All right. Let's start with doubt can lead to deconstruction. Uh, as we get into this, let me do a, a, I want to do a show of hands, okay? Nothing weird. I know you invited a friend. I'll keep it chill up here, okay? So I'm going to scare them off on the first date, you know? They can find out I'm crazy some other time. And so um, if I were to ask, right, serious, literal show of hands. So if I were to ask, uh, are you familiar with the term Christian deconstruction? Can you raise your hand if you're familiar with the term Christian deconstruction? Okay, about seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of you. Okay, about eleven out of the hundred and ten or twenty that are sitting in here. So not very many. Okay, good. That's good. That's good and bad. I'm going to educate you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about deconstruction in general. I'm going to talk about Christian deconstruction and what that means, and then I'm going to show you how we see this in Psalm 73. Sound good? And then we'll talk about how we find dependency and not deconstruction. Sound good? All right, check this out. All right, so deconstruction means this. If you could throw it up there for me, Miss Debbie. Deconstruction quite literally means uh, there is no logical truth in written literature. So if you're a note taker, I want you to underline written literature. If you're writing online, put all that in caps if you're commenting out there. And so there is no different, uh, sorry, there is no uh, absolute truth. There's no logical truth in written literature. This is now no different than what's called postmodern thought. And so if you're familiar with postmodern thought, it would say, or they would say, there is no absolute truth, just in general. There is absolutely no truth. And so what's interesting about that, though, is this, is that argument falls short uh, like this, because they would believe, postmodernism would believe, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Now, here's where the argument falls apart. Whenever I stand up and say, turns out, my truth says your truth is a lie. Well, that puts us in a position where one of us has to be right. By definition, then, it destroys the argument. Are you still tracking with me? Is that too fast? I know I talk fast sometimes. And so you have deconstruction would say there is no absolute truth, just like postmodernism, but specifically looking at written literature. And so in 1960s, there's a French philosopher that came out with this term. He coined deconstruction. And the argument that he had was, uh, was, this, was simple, but it was illogical. And he was essentially making the case that literally, or that literature uh, cannot be used cross-culturally. And so he kind of put out an argument like this, like, you are a Westerner, you're from the West, uh, which means you write with a Western worldview. And because you're a Westerner who writes with a Western worldview, everyone else who's not a Westerner can no longer relate to what you're writing. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't make sense in, lo- in theory, but it, it's like the lo- that's what he's going with. A plus B equals C. That's called a fallacy. That doesn't actually make any sense. If you know <laughs> anything at all about technology, science, mass communication, the West has had an incredible impact on the rest of the world. Sometimes we've overstepped in many ways in our American worldview. We've kind of went into areas we should not go into. But by and large, the West, when it comes to technology, when it comes to science, when it comes to just basic information, we've done an incredible job at sharing that with the rest of the world. So that is a clear fallacy. Now, what has happened in our culture, pay attention. If you need to reel back in, pay attention to this. In our culture, there's something that's called Christian deconstruction. Super sexy right now, making its way to the Midwest. It makes sense that only 11 of you know about this, or have heard about this in your room. Now your phones have heard me, so Facebook's going to put it up on all of your phones. You're going to get ads, you're going to be buying t-shirts, all sorts of things are going to happen. <laughs> Look, pastor, like you missed, this, missed the whole sermon, right? The whole thing. 
Christian deconstruction, what has happened is, pardon my throat, what has happened is American Christians in a very American way have simply stolen a term and then they now have used it to mean something that it did not necessarily originally mean. And so they they put Christian on the front of it and they called it theirs. That's what Christians do a lot. You know, just look at Easter and Christmas, for example. So whenever they they do that, what what has happened then is that the world has kind of grabbed this idea of Christian deconstruction. And what they've done is they've turned it into an identity, much like they do many things that exist in our culture. And so while these Christians, very famous Christians, if you look it up, will say, I'm a Christian who's deconstructing. I'm a Christian, but I'm deconstructing. And what they are in effect, what they're saying is, I'm looking at God's word. I'm looking at God's community. I'm looking at the call to obedience and righteousness. And, and I see this stuff in here about Jesus. And I kind of like that stuff about Jesus, but all that other stuff, I don't think I need that. So I'm going to deconstruct. That logically no longer fits in my world. So they're looking at God and his word and his people, and they're saying, I'm looking at the world over here, I'm looking at this right here, and I'm trying to reconcile the two together, and I can't do it. And so they say, I'm going to take this thread, and I'm going to pull it out. And I like that thread. Now, the problem with your sweater when I pull your thread is what happens? Another thread comes out. Another thread comes out. And so they deconstruct. Does that make sense? You still tracking with me? And so the world has looked at them, and they've said, oh, you can identify, the world, listen, the world has said, you can identify as a Christian, comma, who's deconstructing. You can be a Christian who's deconstructing, and in doing so, you're so bold, you're so strong, you're so different, you're so other. That's exactly what you need to do. That's like us. Come and join us in the world. We'll accept you. We'll invite you. We're inclusive. We're loving. Love wins. Come be a part of us. And yet, what happens is they don't just end up deconstructing, deconstructing, dude, it becomes like a full-on demolition. They lose the, you can't lose your faith, but they walk away from the faith. And so the way that we avoid deconstruction, listen here, is by being real and being honest with where we are in regards to our doubts. You have freedom to doubt. There's freedom to doubt, church. We just established everyone in the room has experienced it. Relational, spiritual, vocational, marital, parental, doubt is inevitable. You with me? Well, we get to see now, Psalm 73, verse 1, is so incredible. We get to walk with this worship leader as he is literally, he's like walking towards deconstruction, and then he turns back, enters into the sanctuary of the Lord, and then starts walking in dependency. And he's going to roll us through all of it. It's going to be absolutely incredible. Psalm 73, verse 1 says this. When you're ready, say ready. All right, you guys are with me. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are a pure heart. He's saying, truly, God's got to be good to them. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so in the psalmist, think about this. He's, he's like, think, I mean, literally in your mind, think about this. Worship leader gets up on stage, and this is his call to worship. Hey, church, I was looking at the world, and I found myself becoming envious of the arrogant. I was looking at what they had. I was looking at how they talked. I was looking at how they treated one another. I was looking at all of their prosperity, and I found myself envious of them. Like, it just looked nice. That's a call to, that's a real call to worship right there. That's a confession, not a call to worship, but... But look, here's the deal. Tell me you haven't been there. You know what I'm saying? 
Like everything's perfect on social media. Tell me it doesn't lead you there. Tell me you've not also asked, which is essentially what he's asking, is Christianity worth it? Is it actually worth it? Let me answer the question before we bump on and I don't have a chance losing you later. Listen, if you come in here and all you hear for some reason is you need to be more and more uh, morally sound and morally good and all put together and you need to have everything figured out and put on a face and walk out this facade and, and if you do that, then God will love you and accept you. Christianity is most certainly not worth it. Right? To, to quote what David said a few weeks ago, don't die trying to be morally good. It'd be a really boring life for you. Like if you know you're gonna go out, dude, just kick the door down when you get to hell and be like, welcome, welcome home, baby. Right? We're never sad about rock stars dying, are we? Like, that dude lived it up, right? Like, that's the reality. If, if all you do is you come in and you're like, I got to be morally good. I just got to try really hard and pick myself up by my bootstraps and I'll do great. You've completely missed the gospel. But if you come in and by God's grace and mercy, you literally get to experience the freedom that comes from hearing about the grace and mercy of Jesus. And you're like, dang, I cannot be good. I cannot be morally perfect. I cannot be morally sound. But Jesus most certainly was in my place as my substitute went to the cross for me. That's liberating. And you like allow that truth to like actually penetrate down deep into your heart and soul. Christianity is so worth it. Like there is nothing more spectacular than this faith. Everything else is telling you to perform, act, respond a certain way. Christianity is the only one that says, no, 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 no. Jesus did that. Now believe that as a reality for you, a truth for you, and then simply respond. And when you fail, believe it again. And when you fail, believe it again. And one day he's going to collect you to glory. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, what, what has happened here? The psalmist is saying, he's confessing. That's not where I was. He's like, dude, I, I, we're going to get there. I was morally like just trying to put on the facade, put on the face, go through the motions, be a good Christian leader, and lead people in that, and it almost destroys him. You could say he almost deconstructs. Psalm 73, 4. Watch, out what, he, watch what he saw. For they have no pain. This is what he saw when he looked at the world. This is what was enticing about the world. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a, we're, uh, talking about prosperity. They're not in trouble as others are. Tell me we haven't said that. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Things are looking pretty good for them. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Do they walk around with their shoulders back? Violence covers them as a garment. They do whatever they want to get their way. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They literally have chubby cheeks. He's just talking about money. And their hearts overflow with follies, stupidity. He's literally saying, the psalmist is saying, Asaph is his name. Asaph is saying, dude, they have a great time. They, they party like rock stars. They don't have any pain. They don't have any trouble. They're proud about it. They have chubby cheeks. Their eyes swell through their fatness. That's, again, just a sign of prosperity. Like when we go to Kenya, for example, when we go to Kenya, sidebar, when we go to Kenya, for example, I get there. I've been to Kenya a few times now. And, and there, if you're a little bit bigger, that's a sign of you got wealth because you can eat, right? So I get there and all these Kenyans around me and they say, Corey, why are you so thin? You are an American. You should be fat. <laughs> so, I said, because America, we got all sorts of stuff backwards, bro, you know? That's a sign, right? They're talking about their cheeks, literally, their cheeks. He's just saying, gosh, everything about them looks put together. Verse 8, check this out. They scoff and they speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression, right? You get in my way, I'll smash you. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, right? They're talking against the Lord and their tongue, it just struts through the earth. Like even their tongue has swag. The way that they approach everything is what... He's saying, he's saying, not only then do they do whatever they want, but they get to say whatever they want. Oh my gosh, how liberating would it be sometimes to just say what we want to say, church? 
I got some things I'd like to say, you know what I mean? I got some counseling conversations that if it were not for the gospel, I would not be paid anymore. There's some things I just want to, some of y'all say too much on Facebook, by the way, and Twitter. Some of y'all, you need to watch what you say. There's a book in here by, the name, by James, Jesus' brother, says you can't tame the tongue. The tongue is a bunch of, full of wildfires. It's a rudder for a big ship. You should read that and then not comment on Facebook. <laughs> verse 10, he says this. Therefore, check out verse 10. He says they do whatever they want. They say what they want. Verse 10. All right, keep it together, guys. 10, he says, therefore, his people, that's God's people, turn back to them. They turn back to the world and they find no fault with the world. Verse 11. And then they say, check this out. Deconstruct, starting to deconstruct in doubt. And then they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? There's some doubt. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. And so the psalmist here, Asaph, is, this worship leader is saying, like he's, he's looked at the world and, and he looks at it and he thinks, this looks incredible. Like th- there's some real beauty going on or there's prosperity happening. They're not sick. They're not ill. They do what they want. They say what they want. My God, that feels so freeing. And he's looking at the world. And the point of this that I love about this is this. Me and you and Asaph, we're not so different. Everyone in this room experiences doubt. Just talked about some of it earlier, man. Many of us, I'm going to say, in the room, are experiencing doubt, incredible bouts of doubt, right now. Like, just led us through a liturgy, and I have in my notes that I didn't even hear the first time. You know, is God really worth it? Can, how do I know I can trust God, she said. She says, I'm like, why do good things happen to bad people? What's interesting about that is those doubts are really, really significant doubts. Can I doubt or can I believe and trust the word of God? Can I trust God the Father to be good? Can I trust in Jesus for my salvation? That's really important stuff. And the reality is, is, is this. Those doubts, okay, whenever they're not addressed, whenever the church does not allow space for people to come in and, and doubt, instead we hit you with a bunch of shoulds. I call it shouldn't on you. I just should all over you. And, and I say, here's what you should do, and here's what you should believe, and here's what you should... there's a time and a tone for that conversation, okay? Whenever we don't allow people to come in and actually address their doubts, whenever we don't allow them to confess, whenever they don't feel, I don't like using the word safe, when they don't feel safe, though, coming into the church, they take those doubts and they just shove them down deep on the inside. And then they begin to believe even more lies that eventually become truths. And they begin to even increase then in even more Doubt, And so the few doubts that we just mentioned becomes thing, become things like this. Can a loving God really create me with same-sex attraction and then call me to be celibate? Would, would a loving God really create me as a woman even though I feel a lot like a man? And then maybe call me to singleness and have to wrestle with that for the rest of my life. These are significant doubts, yes? Would a loving God allow me to be raised in a Christian household that was so abusive and tyrannical? Would a loving God, a covenantal God, a covenantly faithful God, wouldn't he, like, wouldn't he want marriage for me? So why can't I find a spouse? Maybe he got me wrong. Uh, there's a, the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply, and yet we can't conceive in our family. Wouldn't a good and gracious and merciful God, wouldn't he open my womb like he did so many women in the Old Testament? And so you see, like, 
this is where it gets so emotional for me because it's like, if we don't allow like these very simple yet not simplistic questions that come in, can I trust God's word? We don't ever get to dive down deep into the depths of someone's soul and really get to the enemy behind that enemy and really like allow them to just come in and just confess like, here's what I'm actually worried about. Right, whenever people get angry about maybe the doctrine of election or predestination or talks about hell, it's not usually the Bible that they're worried about. It's because their brother's an atheist. And you gotta like get in there, right? And like figure out and listen to stories or story form. And you gotta probe the heart a bit and ask good questions and you invite all that out. But if we give a stiff arm to anyone, the moment that they come in with some doubts, man, the world just comes and wraps her arms about them and says, you can find everything that you need in me. You can find everything here in me. And then they will say this. They will shower them with, this is a beautiful identity. Hey, identify as a Christian, comma, who's just deconstructing. Pull that thread, baby. Pull that thread. You're bold. You're courageous. You're different than everyone else. And he gives them, he, he gives them, enemy gives them a new identity. What's interesting about that is um, it's no different than Satan in the garden. Like, Satan can never prove that God didn't exist in the garden, so he just got Adam and Eve to doubt. Did God really say you couldn't eat of any fruit of the garden? And he's like, I don't know. I don't remember. And instead of going to the Lord, going into the sanctuary where they're doubt, they just go to one another. And then they look, and they're doing the same thing. They're saying, man, we kind of doubt. We're looking at this word. We're looking at God's word. We're seeing what God had told me, but I'm also hearing the serpent over here. And their doubt, because they don't take it into the sanctuary, leads to deconstruction and ultimately sin breaking loose in the cosmos. Asaph, this worship leader, man, he could have turned to the world. His eyes are set on the world. He sees the beauty that's being invited, that he's being invited into. He sees that apple hanging on a tree, man. He wants to go into the world. His doubt is literally screaming inside of his mind. Tell me you can't relate to this man. And yet what happens here is that what well, we see, doubt can lead to dependency, second point. First one, deconstruction. Second one, dependency. First thing the psalmist does, check this out. First thing the psalmist does is what we're terrified to do. He confesses why we do not share our doubts. Check this out. I'm just going to let the scripture speak for itself. Uh, verse 13 says this. We're going to walk through it like we normally do. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. He's literally saying, in vanity. Like in vanity, in pride, you could say in self-righteousness, in vanity, what I did is that I cared more about the way people saw me than the way God saw me. I cared more about what the word of God had to say and the promises of God had to say and God the Father himself had to say. I cared, sorry, I cared more about what the people had to say than all of that. And so in vanity, in self-righteousness, he's saying, I washed my hands and innocence. He's literally saying, I put on the face that everyone wanted to see because I was worried about what everyone was going to think. Is pride keeping you from confessing your doubt today? Are you more worried about the way someone else sees you than God the Father sees you in Christ? Verse 14, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. My gosh, I can relate to this. It does not matter what you do well in this world, church. Somebody's going to have something negative to say against you. Tell me I didn't learn that in the last 22 months. Across the board, our church was dynamite in regards to COVID. But I watched some of my brothers just take shrapnel after shrapnel after shrapnel. It does not matter what you do well. Someone has something to say, right? And so what is he saying? All the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every 
morning, literally, is there a voice in your life that is talking, speaking doubt louder to you than the word of God or God's people? Is there a voice? I'm literally, think about it. Is there a voice, someone, some relationship that you need to deconstruct from? Because they're actually gonna lead you to to destruction. Verse 15, and if I had said, I will speak thus. Oh my gosh, this is just so real. I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying here is this. If I would have shared my thoughts, I would have offended or perhaps discredited someone else's faith, so I just kept silent. And so what he's saying is, I didn't have a place to go. I didn't have a space to walk into. I didn't feel like that I did, is what he's confessing. Listen, do you confess that, that maybe you don't confess your doubt for fear that you might hinder someone else's faith? They might not be mature enough to walk with you, perhaps. I want to just set you free from that. I wrote pastoral moment, dot, dot, dot. That means I got to shepherd your heart in this moment. So, Luke, According to the book of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit seals the saints in Jesus Christ forevermore. There is no losing of salvation. Right? You are either in the faith or you are not in the faith. There's nothing to doubt. What's beautiful about that and what's liberating about that is that if you ever come to someone with some serious doubt and then they want to project onto you that you're the reason that they walked away from the faith, that person was never in the faith to begin with. Like you're strong, powerful, Holy Spirit dwells in you, but you are not the Holy Spirit. You dragon? Like you are not responsible for someone else's salvation or damnation. So just, be, just believe that as part of the gospel today. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can just relate with him. He's just so relatable for me. He's saying like, how do I make sense of this? How do I reconcile it? I'm I'm looking at the world and their prosperity and their goodness and the way they treat one another. I'm, I'm seeing that over, the inclusivity, the, the grace, the mercy that they would call it, although it's not those things. And I'm looking over here and, I, and I'm seeing like this call to holiness and obedience and this, this radical call to follow Jesus. And I'm seeing his grace and his mercy and I can't quite reconcile the two together. And he's like, can you just like feel like he's like in this turmoil as a leader confessing to his people. He's like, it is a wearisome task. I don't know what to do with this until verse 17. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end, the world's end. This is what the whole series on the Psalms has been about, just getting to the feet of Jesus. He says, man, it was wearisome, it was hard, it was burdensome. And then I went into the sanctuary He took his doubt into the sanctuary. Doubt can lead to dependency. First, you have to be real as to why you don't share the doubts that you have. If you don't address that first, the doubts will continue forevermore. And I want to set something straight here. In the sanctuary of the Lord, I'm going to say this just, I only know one way to say it, so give me some grace. In the sanctuary of the Lord, the Lord will not rid you of all your doubts. Like we are always going to find something to doubt in this side of the kingdom. But what the Lord will do as you bring those doubts to him is he will reveal himself to you in a way that now gives you something to compare the world to. And so when you're just like looking at the world and you see all these false substitute saviors over here promising everything, delivering nothing, and then you look over here and you see God the Father and you see the cross and you see the resurrection and all that that means, there's no more comparing anymore. Actually, the utter thought of I need to reconcile the two is diminished, deconstructed. 
Because you can't reconcile the world to Jesus. Jesus comes into the world to bring them out of the world, not to leave us in there. And so as he's looking at the two, he's seeing the instant gratification of the world. He's seeing the incredible splendors and majesty of King Jesus over here. He's trying to figure out what to do. He says, truly, verse 18, as he has to get a right picture of the gospel, he says, verse 18, truly in slippery slopes, slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's saying literally everything over here that is attractive and good is temporal. Everything over here is temporary. And think about it. All the things that you find attractive right now that are materialistic in the world will cease to exist in the next seven years. Everything, every car, every house, every piece of equipment, every piece of technology you have will change in the next two years, won't even be a thought in seven and he's saying, I'm looking at how temporary all this is and how eternal all of this is. And it's like a phantom. It's gone. Moth and rust is literally going to destroy everything I can set my eyes upon. Verse 21, he says, as I'm looking at them, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's saying, the more I looked at them, the more I began to look like them. Right? And so in questioning you, he's saying, I was like a beast towards you. In my sin, I'm questioning you. And he's saying that I'm coming as an unrighteous one into the holy, righteous presence of God, acting beastly towards you in the midst of this doubt. Oh my gosh, here it is. I'm, lead, I'm taking us somewhere. Verse 23 says this. Technically, Psalm 73 is taking us somewhere. It says this. Well, Psalm 23, or verse 23 says this. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Like, think about that, church. Think about that. In the midst of doubt, in the midst of being beastly, in the midst of questioning God, he says, nevertheless, I'm continuing with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory forevermore. So awesome. It's going to get even more awesome. I wrote down in my notes, I didn't know where to put it, so I just stamped it in there, the doctrine of glorification. I just nerd on you for just a minute. If you know me, you know I'm like a total nerd. There's this doctrine so beautiful. It broke me in the first service. That's partially why I don't have a voice anymore. There's a doctrine that's called the doctrine of glorification. And what that is this, and I'm going to use some words that I haven't prepped you for and won't be on the screen, but I'm going to trust the spirit on this one. Whenever Jesus comes back, he comes back in full what? Glory. Comes back in full what? glory. So this is the doctrine of glorification. And so whenever Jesus comes back to call us up to the skies and renew the heavens and the earth, renew, bring a new heaven to earth, we're going to preach on Revelation later on in the year, he comes back in full glory. He still has the scars, as we're going to read about in a moment, but he's a full glorified body. Here's what's beautiful about that. We are going to be called up to him, and we are going to be called up in full what? glory. What that means is that we're going to have full glorified bodies. You cannot, I cannot fathom what that's going to look like. We only know creation within the curse of sin. We have no idea what we're actually going to look like. We might be some semblance of what we are now, but every single thing that you know, whether it is beautiful or whether it is horrific, has been tainted by sin. Like the most beautiful mountaintops in all of human history, as beautiful they are, they are a covered in sin. Think about what the most beautiful thing you could ever see, and it's going to be even better. 
right? So we're going to get these new bodies. We're going to be like, holy smokes, I didn't know you were going to be here, and you look like that. That's incredible, right? And like, <laughs> we're going to be so geeked out about the whole thing. Now, here's what, I'm going to get us back on track, right? Here's the, the whole beauty of the gospel, okay? Because of the finished work of Jesus, because we share in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, even when we're littered with doubt over here, we share in our union with Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Whenever he comes back in full glory, calls us up, we're going to totally geek out about the way we look. And then check this out. But to the Father who is in heaven, we are going to look no different then than we do right now. Doctrine of sanctification. Think about that. That's crazy. There is no one in earth that could offer you that. And so what he's saying is in the midst, I mean, he's talking prophetically here, right? He's walking in concert with the Holy Spirit, pinning this thing. But he's saying this, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my doubt, you literally see me as if I'm already seated next to you in the kingdom. Whenever I lack all confidence in you, Father, you have found your confidence in Jesus Christ and projected that upon me, and you see me as if I'm in glory. That's theology. Dude, it's so good. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. That's why we just, you got to get into the other. It's so good. Anyway, so what he's saying is that, like, you're going to see me, receive me in glory. All that was free. It's just not really in my notes. So verse 25 now, okay, you have to understand that because now verse 25, okay, makes so much sense, church. Whom have I in heaven but you? Think about that. Nobody's offering that. Who have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Doctrine of glorification. And now, verse 27, listen here. Our hearts should break when we get to 27. It is a call to mission. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. That, there should be no prideful arrogance about that. There should be, woe is my soul whenever I read that. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. What does he want to do? That I may tell of all of your works. And so this worship leader, Asaph, has literally taken us through everything. The whole gambit of emotion, full worship service. He starts to call, he starts to, call to worship with a confession of sin. And, and then not for there, he he takes us through that and he says, man, I've seen the world. It looks good and enticing and attractive and it's beautiful over here in some aspects and I'm looking over here and I don't know how to reconcile it. I, I should be able to feel safe and at home in the church body and yet I'm not, I'm not getting that whenever I go in there. And so even in that, when we think about deconstructing, Christians deconstructing, they don't always deconstruct because they got it out for someone. Sometimes Christians deconstruct because they had a really horrific experience with the church. And they come and they brought their doubts in and the church said, you've been a Christian for how long? You should know better. They just showed all over them. You, you should know not to be. You should know to believe that. You should, how long have you been a believer for? And so instead of embracing them, we reject them. Listen, when someone comes to you with doubt, they don't need a quote from Charles Spurgeon. They need a hug. Just embrace them and say, okay, we're going to work through this thing. I'm going to hit you with some hard truth, but there is a time and a tone for when that comes. And until that time comes, you just bring them in. He says, they disappear as phantoms. You, Lord, are forevermore. Listen, being transparent is what keeps us dependent upon the Lord. It keeps us dependent upon one another. As we bring our doubts in, we don't talk about missional community because it's some program that we need at our church. 
We talk about missional community because it's a way of life. It's a space to be able to go into and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm feeling wrecked right now, and I don't know what to believe. And then we walk with them as family. Deconstruction is not always bad, though. I want to say this before I run out of time. The beauty of the gospel is that it redeems everything. And it can also redeem deconstruction. And so what I mean by that is is this. Many of you in this room have believed the lie that no one understands what I'm going through. If people really knew who I was, they would totally reject me. They would not receive me for who I am. You've believed the lie that says, I don't think I can fit in here. The, The church is... You know, it's a, it's a place for people that are all put together. I don't feel all put together. I fall all out of sorts. Therefore, the church must not be for me. That's a fallacy, church. And in the name of Jesus, it needs to be deconstructed. If we're going to deconstruct anything. Like, let the Holy Spirit, in concert with God's word, deconstruct those lies right now. That this is 100%, place, 100% a place for you to come. For you to come with doubt. For you to come with fear. For you to come with the unknown. And just simply lay it bare. And as we come together in dependency upon God's word first, the Holy Spirit as well, and one another, when we come together dependent upon these things, it creates a beautiful environment to allow doubt. Doubt to come in, but doubt hopefully not necessarily to remain. And the gospel speaks to that. So then you would say, maybe, how do, you, how do I know I can trust you, Pastor? How do I know that, that I can come with these doubts? And I would simply remind you of uh, doubting Thomas. Like, you're not the first disciple to doubt in the last couple thousand years. You know that, right? Like, you're a pretty big deal, but you're not that special, okay? <laughs> Think about doubting Thomas. John 20, 24, I'll close with this. I'll have the team come back up, so I'm going to be way over. Get you all up here. Get us rolling. John 20, 24 says this. I'm going to read it, and then I'll say a few things and have the team close this out, and we'll take communion. It says this. Now, Thomas was one of the 12, called the twin, was not with the disciples, with them, whenever Jesus came. That's the first time he came. Uh, so the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark, yeah, see my hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. You wanted it, you got it. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Could you imagine being in that room? It says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Like right here, what, what, is he, what is Jesus doing to Thomas? I mean, he's taking him by the hand literally, just as he did the psalmist Asaph. What, what is he doing here whenever he's embracing Thomas? He's just inviting him again into the sanctuary. He's coming, come and see and come and feel and come and behold. And, and the beauty is this, with this Within this doctrine of glorification in mind is this. What's true for Thomas in this moment is 100% going to be true for us. That there's a moment in time in history when we're in the kingdom of glory and we're going to get to stand before the son and he's going to say, hey, remember all the doubts that you had that I redeemed? Come feel what redemption feels like. You don't just have to hear it as the word put on flesh anymore, but give me your hand, son. Give me your hand, daughter. Put them on my hands and put them on my side. And and in that moment, man, all of our doubts that we could have ever dreamt up in that moment will simply become untrue. This is a doctrine. That's what's promised to us. 
Hey, you, you show me anywhere in the world that will promise you something as powerful, as eternal as that, and I'll follow it. There is no one, there is nothing in the world that says you can have that. Here's what the world says. You can be like us. You can come be like us. You can be bold. You can be courageous. You can be like us. And they're hinging their argument on an argument that says your truth is true for you and my truth is true for me. And then whenever you do something that they don't like, something that you see true and fit to do, they cancel you. Tell me how you can reconcile that in your mind. Right, they're just standing there saying, come, you're so strong, you're so courageous, you're so all the while holding a sign behind their back that says cancel culture on it. And the moment you slip up, gone. And yet for our king who looks at us, who invites us into this sanctuary, he says in the midst of it, when you are the most weary and doubtful, I just see you in glory, not because of anything that you could have done, but because of everything Jesus has done in your place. Amen? Dude, that's the gospel. That's so good. Let's stand up and take communion of that. Gosh. Every week we take communion together uh, as we gather. So if you're new to Heights or you're new in the last few weeks or maybe a guest today, if you didn't grab a communion cup on the way in or you forgot, uh, make your way to the front up here. Uh, totally culturally appropriate to walk up there and grab a communion cup. Uh, before, let me read over you 1 Corinthians. Before you start digging in, let me read it to you. Uh, we read this every week and it says, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so every week I remind you that communion is not a religious event, although we do it every week. It's a redemptive event. What's beautiful about communion is that the cup represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place as your substitute. Uh, the bread represents Christ's body that was broken. And so in that, communion then is a physical touch from the Lord to you. He's not in those elements by any means, but he's most certainly in the room by the Holy Spirit. And so for everyone in the room, and it's all of us, like the moment that we have doubt, this last week, today, maybe on the car right here, Communion is a physical reminder of the willingness Jesus was, what he was willing to do to redeem. And so as you drink his scars and eat his scars in just a moment, man, let that renew you. Let that reform your mind and redeem your hard mind. I would confess to him the reasons why you have harbored doubt and not confess them to him or to the people. And then I would just take and feast. Because after he's presented in full glory and we join him in full glory, man, he gives us what's called a messianic banquet. And he comes with the finest of wines and the finest of meads to celebrate him forevermore. And that's what this meal is about this morning. So for the saints, feel free to partake when you're ready. Thanks.